welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Uma Naidu. So who is Dr. Naidu? Well, Michelin-starred chef David Boulay described Dr. Uma Naidu as the world's first triple threat in the food and medicine space, a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a professional chef, and a nutrition specialist. Now, her nexus of interests have found their niche in nutritional psychiatry. And so we're exploring the fascinating intersection of nutrition and mental fitness in today's episode. In our conversation, Dr. Uma and I unpack the role of food in enhancing mental health alongside traditional therapies like psychotherapy and medications. Dr. Uma shares her clinical insights, highlighting how sometimes very small dietary changes can have outsized impact. We also probe the fascinating connection between the gut and the brain, the bi-directional superhighway of chemical communication and how our food interacts with these messages. So whether you're looking to boost your emotional well-being, curious about the role of food and mental health, or simply interested in learning more about the gut-brain connection, I think you're in for a treat. Now, if you want to hear more from Dr. Uma, go to onecommune.com slash anxiety to receive your first five days of her commune course, Nutrition for Anxiety, for free. But before we dive in, we're so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a good one, to receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on your laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Okay, so without further delay, I present to you the fascinating and wonderful Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Uma Naidu, what a treat. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Jeff, for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, next time, I hope you can stay for a few more days in I will, Los Angeles. I would love to. Love, love this area. So, so um, you've been called a triple threat, so you're a chef. Maybe we'll hear about some of your wonderful recipes. But you're best known as a nutritional psychiatrist. Um, and for those of us who are unfamiliar with that term, maybe you could unpack. Well, what is a nutritional psychiatrist? You know, Jeff, it's a nascent and emerging field in psychiatry, and it is really the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve mental well-being alongside traditional therapies like psychotherapy, which I still feel the different types are super important, as well as the use of medications. Medications mm -hmm. have certainly saved the lives of many of my patients, um, but I don't think it's the only solution. And as I've evolved in my career, nutrition has really played a role in understanding a person's um, lifestyle, metabolic health, and also a way to really help them feel emotionally fit. Hmm. And you see patients. 
I do see patients um, and I continue to learn from them. I feel right. the integration of clinical work as well as the research is key because yeah. you can't just do an important study and not see the effect on a patient. And I think that that has been very important in my career. Yeah. I mean, you, you give a lot of anecdotes in your book yeah. um, about specific patients mm -hmm. that, that you see. And uh, and having that hands-on experience and seeing how alterations to diet protocols, um, we don't know if we really want to call it diet necessarily, <laughs> but how one can introduce and remove different foods right. um, can have a significant impact on one's mental state. And uh, I want to probe that with you. Yeah, you know, they certainly do. I think that the way that I like to portray it to patients is that there's so many foods they can add to feel better. And as we add food, they feel a greater sense of abundance than restriction. And then we start to cut back on mm -hmm. the, yeah. the, the bad players in the diet that they, they could actually be um, replacing with healthier versions. Um, and I think it's key because a lot of, you mentioned you know, diet, and a lot of people think when they hear, hear that word, it's restrictive and food does not, cannot taste, cannot taste. Um, good, you know, and I think right. that that often puts people off. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that the diet culture has really worked. It has not worked. I mean, and it continues to, to fail. Work. Yeah, I, you know, I, I read yeah. some figure that 80% of Americans are on a diet, yet year over year, we continue to see yeah. uh, increases in metabolic dysfunction or metabolic syndrome and obesity, yeah. et cetera. So yeah. I'm not sure that diet culture is working. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, you do such a fantastic job at yeah. illustrating how, you know, we can still have this very vibrant relationship with food, yes, but that also loves us back. Right? <laughs> I love how you said that. Yeah. It loves us back. And, and we learn in small and steady ways, the small tweaks that we can make to, um, just to feel better. I had this great example recently. I'd presented as a keynote at a conference in the UK last year. And one of the doctors um, came up to me and said, you know, after I heard your talk last year, I learned such an important fact that I didn't know how to interpret the amount of sugar in my food because I looked at food labels and I couldn't understand that four grams of sugar was one teaspoon. Right. But when you gave examples and you called out, you know, fruited yogurt, um, whether it's a dairy version or, or a non-dairy or plant-based version of yogurt, I hadn't thought about that. And so I switched my yogurt to plain mm -hmm. and I stopped eating the cakes and cookies in the office. Even though they were there, I just thought, let me, let me see what happens um, without these. And he lost s close to 8 to 10 pounds over the year, mm. simply only doing that. Amazing. not doing anything, I mean, regular exercise and things like that. But he said, just cutting out that amount of sugar that I'd been eating in the office um, and switching my yogurt were very powerful. So I think it's about those little tweaks you can make without feeling deprived. Yeah. And, you know, we often associate vicious cycles with downward spirals. Yes. Um, but there can be a sort of upward positive spirals too. There can too. be many positives. <laughs> True. And, and sometimes those come from just you know, little itty bitty increases yeah. in basal metabolic rate or losing right. five to six pounds, right. or just making little tweaks. Yeah. And then you're, you're setting yourself up for a positive upward spiral. And, um, 
and that's obviously uh it, it sometimes feels maladaptive in the short term but long term very very adaptive um one thing that i i just want to remark about you in general and then we'll get into gut brain connection and all the juicy stuff is that i really am an admirer of your approach because you are yeah. not sensationalist about your content um you are stringent and rigorous about the research. You cite a lot of studies and research. And you're also not fundamentalist about yep. certain approaches. So like you said, you know, there might be some cases where maybe benzodiazepines is appropriate or maybe SSRIs are appropriate. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, in conjunction with cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. or other forms of talk therapy right. and then obviously food protocols, et cetera. So you're very open-minded. You're willing to, um, to you. you know, to value a lot of different approaches. Yeah. So I really do appreciate that because we we live in a world where sometimes sensationalism is rewarded and wins. So well, thank you for saying that, Jeff. You know, I I've discovered through my own process and growth that some of my um, spirit of wanting to always include people also comes from something we talked about offline before we started, which is that I grew up in apartheid in South Africa. Mm. And um, I learned at a very early age, and it's taken many years to work through that in my own therapy, um, what it is like to be excluded on the basis of things like your skin color or your culture. And one of the things that really helped me grow from that, um, positive sort of traumatic growth from that, is never pe make people feel excluded. So even though I was raised in a Hindu family that's entirely vegetarian, mm -hmm. as a chef, I cook anything. Um, I had my chef instructors yell at me a lot, but until they tasted my food and realized I had figured out a way to measure ingredients that I would, would get, you know, over practicing it, would get it right. But part of that comes from never wanting people, even on, the, on account of what they eat. So people will say, well, you only advocate for plant-based diet. I personally am plant-based, but not everyone with a mental health condition wants to only eat plant-based food. So you have to adapt the nutritional elements to that person. And for me, it comes from that uh, deep set experience of feeling excluded from, you know, in a country that really didn't recognize my color or my culture. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that's important to, to, um, help people feel human despite any mental health issues they may be having. That's a beautiful thought. Um, as we were discussing before we got in, we, we share a, a love, a mutual love for South Africa. Yeah. You grew up there. I spent three months there when I was 17 yes. and I uh, got to enjoy a, a variety of different cuisines there. And uh, mm -hmm. obviously Indian cuisine is such a big part of that culture. It, it is. And um, the, the town that I come from, the city that I come from is known for blending their own spices, mm -hmm. all obviously originating in India and having been you know, brought over and recipes and, and all of that. But it's really known for that. And that's one of the reasons as well that I speak so much about spices in the book is that it's an overlooked yeah. ingredient. In, yeah. in what we eat. Well, we'll get into turmeric and curcumin, hopefully, <laughs> and saffron, yeah. because these spices um, seemingly have a very big impact on our on our mental health. They do. Um, they they really do. Okay, so you're a psychiatrist, but you're a nutritionist, which to me uh, suggests that you're interested in the brain and the <laughs> function of the brain, but you're also just as interested in the function 
uh, of the gut. Mm-hmm. So we've typically separated those mm-hmm. things in, in Western medicine. We, we tend to, um, to silo yeah. um, how we look organ at different systems system. and organ systems of the body. Um, but obviously you see the brain and the gut as connected and science has started to prove that out. So um, can you uh, elaborate a little bit on how, what's that bi-directional communication look like? What are the different uh, highways, if you will, uh, between the brain and the gut? It's a great question, you know, because part of it is that mental health is really evolving in the direction of helping us understand it's not above the neck Mm -hmm. concept and the ongoing uh, research around the gut-brain connection um, has really helped us, you know, because the gut and brain originate from the exact same cell line in the human embryo, and the two organs grow, divide, and and grow apart, but then are connected by the tenth cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, which is a two-way superhighway, um, mm. allowing for. I, I like to tell people, kind of like teenagers text each other all the time. <laughs> these two systems just are sending these text messages in the form of chemical messages. I have three teenagers, uh, by the way. And uh, you're, so, <laughs> I have three teenagers, yes. by the way, so I'm very familiar I, with I that metaphor. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so they continue like this all the time. It's bidirectional. So one organ to the other organ in both ways. But then you start to understand a little bit more about the gut, which is not only are these origins of these two organs the same, but... 90 to 95% of serotonin, the happiness hormone, and the serotonin receptors are in the gut. Mm. And serotonin is also made there as one of the places it's made. So when you start to put these factors together, you realize that there has to be this food-mood connection when you think about the gut and brain. And, and then when you dive deeper, you realize there is that connection. And that is really one of the mechanisms that has is front and center in nutritional psychiatry. There are other mechanisms still being researched, but it's, it is something that I have seen um, clinically mm. that, that makes sense. Yeah, so there is an actual physical nerve. Yes. Where does, that, does it start kind of in the brainstem? In the, or where uh, it, yes, in, yes, in the brainstem, yeah. exactly. And so, and just because I, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I'm kind of feeling my way through of it. Of course, yeah. So I assume that, that up and down that nerve, there are electrical signals yes. that are connecting, that are making communications essentially between, between neurons and um, and so there's essentially communication coming up um, from the enteric nervous system yes. um, through like neuropods and neurons yes. in your gut that are sending signals um, to your brain. Like, for example, I know that I think there's some neuropods in your gut that yes. can send sugar and send that little signal, um, back, signal up back to back your to brain, brain. And there's probably some sort of dopamine reward system going on up there, which is saying, give me more of that. <laughs> yeah, right. all, all of that. Yeah. True. Yeah, and, and the enteric nervous system, um, the reason that the gut is called the second brain is because the enteric nervous system is the largest body of nerves mm. um, and neurons outside of the brain. So, and what it does is it wraps around the gut. And so exactly what you're describing is hugely important because there are these real connections happening um, in real time between these organ systems and sending these very explicit chemical messages. And that's where food, the food that we eat, as part of the digestive process starts to interact with these messages. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the biggest things in mental health that has really also come forward is our understanding that conditions like depression, anxiety, and even cognitive disorders, focus, energy, um, are related in part to inflammation. And that inflammation 
get set up in the gut also, one of the reasons is the food we eat. Um, right. It's not the only reason, but one of the reasons. So are you referring to foods that might degrade the tight junctures of the epithelium, for example, and lead to intestinal permeability or leaky gut? Over time, and yes. Lipopolysaccharides and endotoxin and entering the blood system, the immune system yes. says, wait a minute, these shouldn't be here, sends out an inflammatory response, and we can get then into a cycle of chronic inflammation, and then Over that time. can spread to the brain. That's exactly right. So the way that I um, speak about it is, you know, the food that we eat is digested and in part in, in, is involved with the gut microbes. But the gut microbes are of many different types. We study the bacteria, but there are archaea, viruses, fungi, protozoa, many different types. Mm -hmm. And when our food products are digested, so say, you know, you had a healthy salad for lunch with a clean protein, lots of fiber, colorful vegetables. Um, delicious foods, lots of spices, it breaks down, the breakdown products usually form short-chain fatty acids, and that's what we want to happen because they have a positive impact on the gut. They're protective of that gut lining, the single-cell lining, and those tight junctions, which are important. Because it's a single-cell lining, you want those tight junctions to be intact. But when we are eating, you know, the sugar, the candy, the chocolates, uh, not dark, not extra dark chocolate, but candy bars, and those types of foods, the breakdown products are actually toxic to the gut and to the gut lining, and they start to pierce those tight junctions. And it's exactly as you said, that's what starts to cause that leakiness and leads to bigger problems, and it also upsets the balance of the gut, so you get dys dysbiosis. Right. And, um, you know, I, I see an uptick of symptoms when people make sudden dietary changes, and a month later they're having more anxiety. It's 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 Pretty, you know, it, it's very telling, very telling. I've got to imagine in your line of work, you are seeing a tremendous correlation between um, kind of self-reported anxiety and depression and gut issues, dysbiosis and leaky but gut. That's correct. I often get referred uh, individuals from gastroenterologists mm -hmm. for medications, saying someone is super anxious. I think it's related to this condition that they have. I think they need a medication. And lo and behold, they walk into my office and I, my virtual office these days, and I spend time uh, unpacking the history and realize that, you know, they've had a positive job change, gotten promoted. Um, you know, are now traveling more for work. So they're not eating home lunches. They're not packing food to and snacks to take the office because they're in airplanes, landing in different cities, going to networking events, drinking two glasses of wine a night, whereas in fact they were drinking one on the weekend with their friends when they went out for dinner. Um, and the entire diet has changed because of lifestyle. Yeah. And it's not a negative thing in the lifestyle. It's actually a positive thing. The person is you know, doing something better in their career, earning more money, and an uptick of symptoms. And you, you know, it's, it's not immediate. Although the microbes respond within two hours, the actual changes take time. So you don't see that inflammation set in immediately, but it starts to happen if you persist with that diet. Um, and simple, and that individual and individuals like that, those dietary changes of just going back to the basics of what you were doing all, mm -hmm. all the time you before you had anxiety actually work yeah. uh, for them. So <clears throat> this could be 
an overabundance of high glycemic foods, for example, or too much alcohol. It could also be <clears throat> overprescription of, of broad spectrum antibiotics or maybe too many proton pump inhibitors or all of the above yeah. toxins, glyphosate. I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of different Correct. inputs that can degrade the, the fast the foods. Fast foods. So, right. fast foods, yeah. one of these individuals, um, because of <clears throat> lifestyle changes, was, I was buying fast foods in, in the airport. Um, you know, running to get onto a plane, arriving in a city late at night, eating out of the bar fridge, you know, candies and 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 Snicker bars and things like that, um, or eating bar snacks, again, processed foods, um, instead of the whole foods she had been eating. And a lot of those, for example, fast foods, uh, French fries have sugar in them. The research French and development, have they have, French fries have sugar in them. You don't Man. taste it, but the research and development uh, it's a lot of money spent in that to make them hyper palatable. And one of the ways where you start to, you know, you, I know you haven't done this in a while, if ever, Jeff, but you know, you walk <laughs> up to the, to the, um, window and you upsize your fries. And then when you get the bigger size, you actually eat the whole, the whole bag. Right. And you wonder, well, I originally thought I'd get a small and I hear this all the time, but they meant they're engineered to be hyper palatable. And so right. you start eating them and you want more. That's because of the sugar that you don't taste. Um, and then the, the processed vegetable oils that are more cost-effective for fast food restaurants. And they're very pro-inflammatory to the gut. So if that's what you're mostly consuming, you, you're starting to create that dysbiosis in your gut. And these are, these are like hydrogenated oils, like seed oils? Hydrogenated seed oils, and seed oils uh, vegetable oils, which are frequently labeled vegetable, but often have a large component of, um, you know, uh, of soy, soybean, um, some oils include things like corn that are pro-inflammatory as well. So many people don't realize that because they're not thinking um, what the products are fried in. So. Yeah. And so help me pull on this thread for a second. So let's say we talked a lot about the upstream causes of, of inflammation. Mm -hmm. When inflammation goes to the brain, the brain has kind of these microglia, right? So the glia get inflamed. And does that essentially down-regulate uh, neuron metabolism, and then that's what's contributing to degradation of the hippocampus or loss mm -hmm. of synaptic connectivity or density? Or, it, I mean, what, what's going on it's, there? It's, man, it's yeah. many of those mechanisms. Yeah. I, I don't think we're 100% sure of which one is causing what. Mm -hmm. As you know, um, we also touched on this, some of the belief around even the serotonin hypothesis has been questioned. Right. And I'm always cautious about sharing that because even though it has been done by you know good researchers, that doesn't mean everyone on, on an SSRI should stop taking it because there are other things involved. But you're absolutely right. There's this very delicate system. The microglia involved, the neurotransmitters are involved, and the moment that the brain starts to get inflamed and we start to develop neuroinflammation, all of those um, cells are impacted. And so are their function and so are the neurotransmitter uh, uh, transmission. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 sort of a mishmash of many things, but you see it and come out in the symptoms that people have. Yeah. Let's talk about serotonin for a second because it's come under some scrutiny over the yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, clearly, there's been a massive <clears throat> deployment of SSRIs, Paxil yeah. and Prozac, mm -hmm. et cetera. I know plenty of people that have... Um, experience some relief mm -hmm. from yeah. SSRIs. Mm -hmm. 
I think the number needed to treat is like seven or something like that. So not everyone's responding to it, yes. um, but some people, but some people do. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it seems like the modern science is saying that low levels of circulating serotonin in the brain are not particularly associated with mental disorders, depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but serotonin does seem to play some role. Yeah. Um, but we haven't necessarily put our thumb on what that role is. Like right. maybe, um, like I've heard some people make the case that serotonin and its relationship to uh, other molecules like growth factor mm-hmm. is helping to essentially uh, contributing to synaptic connectivity mm-hmm. in the hippocampus, for example. Right. So there's something going on there, but we don't 100% know what it is. I, I, I agree with that. I think that to your point about medications, for the first time in my entire career, more than two decades now, um, Zoloft went on shortage, which is certainly mm-hmm. in May, maybe April, May of 2020. And this was because there were new prescriptions, so many new prescriptions for Zoloft in that time yeah. that there was an actual shortage. So whether it actually helped people or not, I'm not sure because clinically, and even the research has shown this, not everyone responds. Uh, and it takes either so many trials or so many doses or so many different ones um, that it is. it could be one of the things we use, but it shouldn't be the only thing, which mm-hmm. which brings us back to why nutrition and, and our metabolism, all of those things are so important. I think that we, we with serotonin, we can't throw out you know, the expression, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We've got to understand it's involved in some way, and maybe as we research this more, we'll understand it better. And I... I've, always am fearful when there are really good research, uh, quality research done, because the the way that sometimes the media plays into this and the way that it gets published and shared, people panic. Right. This happened recently with um, the World Health Organization and a spa team, and they are potentially, uh, they actually in a few weeks are going to be um, calling it a potential potential carcinogen. Mm. And uh, the whole thing is that, you know, no. I, when people hear that, there's, there's a sense of panic. And I'm not saying people should be, use, could, should be using the aspartame. I'm not saying no. that well, at all. Well, you've made a fairly significant case against it, it in it, your book. So, it, yeah. I, I have. <laughs> yeah. But it's also uh, uh, sometimes the way something is conveyed. That's right. So I think the balance around serotonin is, like, to your point, we are understanding the mechanism. It is definitely involved. It's not the only thing that's involved. Um, speak to your doctor about, you know, using nutritional measures in addition to tapering off a medication or switching your medication or coming off. Or if you're otherwise functioning, as a large part of my practice, people who are functioning but want to look as an, at an alternate way through nutrition to feel better and see that if that works first. Mm-hmm. If someone is actively suicidal, manic, psychotic, those can't, food can always be part of it, but it can't be the first line of treatment because safety is, is so important. Right. But serotonin is playing a part. Right. I don't think it's as major a player as was thought when these medications were brought forward and kind of took over the world. Right, right. Well, you, you talk a little bit about serotonin as uh, intestinally produced serotonin. Yeah. So, um, and in your book, you talk about the precursor of serotonin, um, the essential amino acid tryptophan. Yes. So what role could tryptophan play mm-hmm. um, in the production of serotonin mm-hmm. in the gut? 
And how important is serotonin that's produced in the gut, given that serotonin doesn't really cross the blood-brain barrier, mm-hmm. but but potentially there is some reaction there up the vagus nerve with mm-hmm. the with the 5-HTP receptor or whatever. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, tr- people associate tryptophan with Thanksgiving and Turkey, and they sort yeah. of have this in their head. But some of what the research shows is that it is important. For example, tryptophan is needed by prescription in certain countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is that uh, it isn't easily absorbed into the brain and it needs to be paired up with a carbohydrate. So in my book, I kind of make the joke that, you know, maybe it's the mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving that's actually creating the impact. <laughs> yeah, but tryptophan, I like that. tryptophan is... It gives is, me a good excuse to eat mashed <laughs> <Exactly>. potatoes. <laughs> um, it is important, but it, um, it crossing blood-brain barrier, one of the things that does happen when we, say, consume a lot of sugar and consume a lot of candy and sort of refined sugar, I, I, I believe we should be eating fruit and healthy portions of it uh, on occasion, in, and in moderation and sticking to things like berries and lower glycemic foods, certainly in mental health, where those can cause weight gain. But um, we shouldn't be avoiding them. But if we're just eating refined sugars and candy bars and, and ice cream all the time, that actually is helping the transportation of tryptophan across the blood-brain barrier. And so when, when people say to me, but I feel good mm. when I eat ice cream, yes, it's true. But it's also having a down, you know, a it's not also having a, a good effect on your brain after that initial feeling. Mm. And that's why I usually say, you know, comfort, fo- comfort food is discomfort for the brain because it's not going to continue to help your brain and it can actually be damaging to the neurons itself. Mm-hmm. So, Would you recommend um, supplementing with tryptophan? Or I think it's you can supplement with 5-HTP, but I think if you can yeah. supplement with, with, I don't know what it's called, TR- TRP or? You, you you can. What I, in all honesty, I, so I believe in supplements. I believe there's a place for them because I do, I've sort of matured and understood over time that um, we do all have nutritional gaps. Even as if you try to be the perfect eater, you're going to have some nutritional gaps. Supplements do play a role. I personally think there are other ways to handle that. You know, just making those adjustments, like I talk about in my book around what are the foods I can include? What are the, for example, saffron is a great supplement because the amount that we consume in food is not enough. It, it's t- a few threads of saffron in a dish. So it's not going to give you the amount of the studies were actually done using supplements. And it helps depression. So there's a good reason to try a saffron supplement. I don't feel that strongly about a tryptophan supplement because I feel like people have other aspects of food armor that they can use right. and try those first. Um, whereas there's some of those, say, spices and herbs and stuff where it's worth taking the supplement because they have shown in trials to be effective. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the gut and what we what we should put into it. Um, yeah. So maybe you could start with prebiotics or, mm-hmm. or fiber and what mm-hmm. role does that um, play within this gut-brain axis? Mm-hmm. So an, an overlooked nutrient in the in the United States is fiber because most people are obsessed with their protein intake. And um, it's not that protein isn't important, but we overlook fiber. And yeah. fiber is found in plant foods, uh, vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains. And uh, studies have shown that Americans are grossly lacking in the amount of fiber they eat. 
Yeah. Why is it important? Because it feeds the gut. So prebiotics are actually a form of fiber that nurture and feed the gut microbes. They need to live well and eat healthy. And by eating prebiotic fiber, which you can take as a supplement, but it's also available in foods like the allium family, garlic, leeks, onions, um, bananas, oats, jicama, uh, Jerusalem artichoke. There's a variety of foods that you can actually eat, mm-hmm. um, and some people supplement with, um, you know, with with other for, uh, sort of other powders and other things that are bringing you prebiotic fiber. By doing that, you're bringing fiber to the gut and you're nurturing these microbes. So that is key in doing so, and I encourage us to do that because we're not getting fiber in, in other places. Then there are fermented foods. A really a good study published in Cell in summer of 2021 done by researchers at Stanford showed that by adding fermented foods to your diet, you actually start to lower inflammation. So that was a, a great reason to understand why we can include fermented foods. And every culture has a fermented food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why not tap into those and start to include them, acquire a taste for them and start to add them into your diet? Can you give us a few examples of fermented foods that, sure. that we might want to eat? Sure. So miso, tempeh, kombucha, kefir, which is a soured yogurt, just by the plain version, um, miso, fermented soybean paste. Um, with, with some of them like kombucha, if you're buying it at a store, um, you know, just watch out for the added sugars because it has that sort of fermented taste to it. Often manufacturers will add sugar or artificial sweetener to uh, combat that taste. And so, you know, um, sauerkraut, pickles, um, all of these can, uh, kimchi, all are fermented. And what they're doing is these foods are bringing your gut live active cultures and therefore sort of feeding, they, they're feeding your gut. Um, so these are important. And then um, things like yogurt with, you know, plain yogurt, dairy or non-dairy um, have added, have these probiotics in them. So Having those 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 foods help, and then there are the categories of food like omega three fatty acids. And these, if you consume seafood, are uh, you know uh, the mnemonic I like to use so people remember is smash. So sardines, um, mackerel, uh, anchovies, <laughs> salmon, yeah. and herring. And herring. <laughs> so it's just easy to get these because it, when individuals don't have as much access to food and you know they can't afford a, a side of salmon. They can actually have canned salmon because you're still going to get some benefit from that. Um, canned sardines, canned anchovies. So these these are options for people to get those omega-3s. But there are also um, short-chain omega-3s, ALA, which are not as well converted in the brain, right. but they're still available. And you can take an algal oil supplement because it's found in um, you know sea greens and, and walnuts and chia seeds and flax seeds. So that's another big group. To include, I, I right. can't forget spices, one of my favorite categories. And there's lots of options in spices and herbs. Um, and, you know, th- those are sort of the, the bigger categories. But then I talk about leafy greens because people don't realize that leafy greens contain vitamin B9, which is folate, and folate supports mood. Low folate is associated with low mood. And th- these were sh- this was shown in studies like decades ago. So we've known that a while. So of course it, you build on that, but those are some of the foods to start to add. Yeah, that's great. That's so helpful. Um, I think it's also helpful that you delineate between prebiotics, yeah. probiotics, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned short chain fatty acids, which in some ways can be seen as postbiotics. 
So they're a kind of metabolite of Of. live bacteria. And there's Uh, ongoing research around postbiotics, psychobiotics, symbiotics. It's it's really a growing and emerging field. Mm -hmm. I think the more more that we can manipulate these uh, through food, the healthier we could be. Well, I mean, we talked about intestinal permeability or leaky Mm -hmm. gut before. Butyrate, which is one of the short-term fatty acids that is produced when you feed your gut bacteria good fiber, yeah. it actually helps to maintain that integrity of the epithelial wall. So, you know, so there's good reason there. It also seems to play a role in insulin sensitivity and mm-hmm. lowering inflammation and so many other different systems. So, um, it's so, a it's yeah. a positive it's a positive byproduct of digestion that we want to have right. versus those toxins that get um, formed when we are eating less healthy foods. Um, the other thing is, this is really interesting study, but it's an, it was an animal study, and it was done, I want to say, March last year, or published la- March last year, and it looked at um, CMC, which is carboxymethylcellulose, which is actually a food thickener. Mm. So you'll see it on foods that require some thickening agent. And the study showed that um, the, the um, CMC caused a lower, affected the gut microbiome and and uh, for, had an impact on the gut microbiome's ability to form short-chain fatty acids. Mm. So even though it was an animal study, what it is inferring um, is that by when we eat those processed, ultra-processed sort of junk foods that have thickness in them, we're impacting our microbiome through that mechanism, potentially. I know you're not fundamentalist about meat, and I don't mean to throw us into a great meat debate. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's plenty of protein, amino acid bioavailability in meat, mm-hmm. taurine, uh, choline. There's a lot of yeah. fine reasons to eat meat yeah. um, in moderation, grass-fed, yeah. etc. Yeah. Um, but as it pertains specifically to the gut, mm-hmm. and there does seem to be a preponderance of studies that 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 associate consumption of meat with colorectal cancer, for example. There's this protein, NU5GC, that seems that we've lost the enzyme, you know, mm-hmm. some thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. We mutated out that that seems to cause, uh, create antibodies, cause an inflammatory response. Right. Um, what is the consumption, what is the impact of the consumption of meat specifically on the microbiome? And the gut. I think it. I think the the research uh, varies. I, mm-hmm. I think there's you know a lot of talk about the breakdown substances and TMAOs, right. and honestly, the research on that is mixed. The proponents who uh, want people to eat meat are uh, you know very actively saying that you know those studies just don't pan out, and the opposite for those who are fully plant based, arguing you know, you're killing yourself and you're killing your gut and you're killing the microbes and you're damaging your gut by eating these these foods. I think that, so let me let me suggest a little bit of my philosophy. If you consume meat, to your point, um, consume it in the cleanest form. Have it in moderation. Um, you know, at the, around the time that my book was published, 
we didn't have the updated research that uh, saturated fats has been a rethinking around saturated fats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in uh, further things that I've written, I've been I've been careful to honor that because it has changed. Not everyone believes it. You know, you'll, you'll go to some cardiologists and they will still say to their patients, you should never eat this, never eat that. And I respect that. That's their opinion. But you also have to look at the, what the newer science is showing. Um, so I think that eat it in moderation there, um, if you have a family history of certain cancers like colorectal cancer, you should be getting regular colonoscopies. You should be getting checked because that could be a risk. Mm-hmm. As to the mechanism, not 100% sure because there's varied research on that. And I'm not trying to get out of the question, but I am saying that in nutritional science on any given day, I mentioned omega-3s, for example. A very esteemed colleague of mine published a paper I think it was at the end of 2021 in geriatric patients where it shows that omega-3s did not help geriatric depression. Mm. And this was a very well-done study. Does it mean when we take my patients off the omega-3s that they're eating or, or taking as a supplement? No. So there's always um, mixed data. So how do you interpret it for the individual? And I personally think the way forward is through personalization of things like nutritional psychiatry, which over the course of my practice and my clinic, it's gotten much more personalized um, and much more related to the person versus the general principles of eat this and cut back on that. There are some guiding principles to get someone started. But then when you work with someone on an individual basis, there's a deeper way in which you can really cut you you can create that personalized plan for them. So if you eat meat, eat clean meats, eat it on, you know, um, in moderation. And lean into plant foods because they are doing good good for your body with the fiber, the polyphenols, the antioxidant properties, and anti-inflammatory properties. I will also say, just, just to add to the mix, I talk about antioxidants all the time. And we, we taught the first um, nutritional neuroscience course in Harvard this past semester. So we launched a course. and um, It's about time. I, yes. <laughs> well done. It's only taken us, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, at, at the, at, uh, not at the medical school, by the way. Medical school, we're doing some other things, but mm-hmm. at, at regular Harvard. And one of the things I uncovered is, and I shared it with my students, I said, you know, I want you to know I talk about antioxidants positively all the time, but there are, there are this... There's this body of studies that show that antioxidants can actually be precancerous and actually start to cause certain cells to convert into cancer cells. Mm. And, um, you know, just be aware that for the most part, these are healthy substances, but we don't know what we don't know. So we have to have that balanced approach to understanding if someone is eating meat and they have a family history of colon cancer or stomach cancer or other ones that they have, have been associated with certain uh, certain dietary restrictions, they need to be careful, mm-hmm. monitoring. No one is saying never eat it, but but be, be conscious of the choices that you're making. Yeah, and I think that this is the most exciting part of this era of medical science is mm-hmm. that the opportunity for bioindividuality, yes. for precision medicine, for people to take a lot of more agency yes. over their own health because for generations you basically generally saw a man in a white coat once a year mm-hmm. maybe if you <laughs> kept the appointment <laughs> um and and that was really your window yeah. into your own health mm-hmm. and you know if you didn't get a call back you know about your blood panel mm-hmm. then you just assumed that you were fine mm-hmm. 
But obviously we know with so many of these chronic diseases, they're progressive and they don't present right away. Mm -hmm. It takes decades sometimes for these things to present. And, um, and so now there's so many tools available uh, for people to have more agency over their own health. I wore a continuous glucose monitor mm-hmm. for two years. I mm-hmm. wear an aura ring. Mm-hmm. Um, I religiously do blood panels. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are available to, honestly, to consumers. You don't even Definitely. actually have to go to your doctor for them if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is the you know, we're in a really, really exciting time. And I think if there was any silver lining to COVID, um, and there are not many, but uh, it's that people became a lot more curious about their own health. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, for better or worse, still a lot of research. Um, Sometimes the research can be a little dangerous because you're not always getting the most uh, stringent sources. But I think that that curiosity about one's own physiology i think it's a great thing it's it's very empowering to people Mm -hmm. and nutrition is one of those lifestyle factors as well as exercise outdoor time wearing an aura ring um finding a a program that can help monitor your glucose on your own um these are empowering the public and i think you know, I feel I, people often say to me, well, you know, why don't you, t- if I mention the French fry story, for example, why don't you bring that up with the food industry? I think there's a place for that. We do some advocacy work at Harvard. We, you know, we have a committee that has represented several things, and we have really looked at it from the education angle of physicians and how we can broaden bringing nutrition in as one of the things. And I say to people, I think there's a role, and, and there are people who are actually taking on the food industry. Um, and all of that is good, uh, and, and I support that. But in the short term, what, what can people do? Um, for example, when they change the food labeling, uh, food labels were supposed to go through many years ago to have added sugars listed on our food labels in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There was pushback from many industries against that for many years. So I say to people, in the meantime, while some good people are working with the food industry, what can you do? And that's where personal advocacy choices you make, voting with your dollars, you know, right. as to where you spend your money, um, whether it's a medical test that you get on your own, um, like a lab test, that's pretty harmless uh, to get that and then take it and, and be able to interpret it with your doctor or um, the, the food that you choose to buy. Those things are really creating much more independence for people and uh, an ability to make choices that may suit their lives better. Yeah, absolutely. While there is seemingly endless debate around the topic of consumption of meat, there seems to be very little debate about sugar, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Although carbs are often vilified, you don't vilify carbs, you actually have a more nuanced approach you say like carbs are okay because carbs are fiber, but mm-hmm. really what you want to focus on is low glycemic yes. index carbs. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Uh, so those with higher fiber, so vegetables, you know, is is yeah. a good example. Um, the examples of fiber we spoke about earlier. It's the choices that people make. So in a, in an individual who is say has schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and is taking medications that are potentially life-saving because they have active psychotic symptoms that need to be treated. And they're eating, you know, sliced processed bread, as may 
be found in a group home where they live, a residential set setting. You know, those those are the things I want to try to focus on and adapt and adjust. Like, what can we do differently here? Because those are the foods that are causing them to gain weight and affecting them to, you know, moving on to developing met metabolic syndrome. So it is the type of carb you eat, the quality, the amount, and little things, the nuances, like, you know, you should eat fruit, but if you are on mental health medications, maybe stick with berries and the lower glycemic, have an apple. Yeah. You know, don't lean into pineapple and mango, some of my favorite fruit, but they are higher glycemic, you know. Yeah. So it's it's about making those choices, and you don't have to give these foods up forever. I'm just saying get to a point of better health and metabolic health, yeah. and, you know, then um, be able to work with a nutritionist, a doctor, a nutritional psychiatrist to be able to eat the foods you want, but over time. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes... Um like neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's has mm -hmm. been labeled um, type 3 diabetes. Yeah. I've heard that mm -hmm. quite a lot now. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting um, uh, doctor researcher named um, Ben Bickman who's been um, at BYU or Utah, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, he, he actually studies like hippocampal tissue, for example, mm -hmm. and what he's finding is that that tissue um, and those cells have developed insulin resistance. Mm. So there is some dysfunction in the metabolism of glucose in the mm -hmm. brain. And I, I know um, Chris Palmer, who's mm -hmm. a psychiatrist at Harvard, mm -hmm. put out a book recently. He was on the show mm -hmm. called Brain Energy. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be sort of mounting momentum mm -hmm. around this idea that a lot of these psychiatric disorders and neurodegenerative disorders are... Um, an inability for the brain mm -hmm. to properly make energy. Essentially, mm -hmm. a metabolism in the brain becomes compromised through insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of back up from there, mm -hmm. through, you know, through the consumption, overconsumption of sugar, mm -hmm. which can contribute to insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. um, also, obesity can seems yes. like it can yeah. contribute to insulin resistance. Um, and then you have this hyperinsulinemia at the same time of having insulin resistance, but your brain also, which often really loves to use ketones for yeah. energy, mm -hmm. but ketones can't really exist in the mm -hmm. presence of hyperinsulinemia. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we get into these situations where, you know, your, your brain is not able to yeah. generate energy. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the overconsumption of sugar may be at the root of, of some of that reasoning. I think that it's definitely at the root, and it's not just your, you know, pure cane sugar. It's the foods that get converted into sugar, like the sliced bread, right, or um, other foods that you know people don't anything realize that becomes glucose. That, anything <laughs> that becomes glucose. So, so people understanding that becomes important, and I do think there's a you know a huge um, role for how we interpret metabolic effects especially in mental health. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Shibani said, a colleague of mine was the open, like I opened and founded the clinic in nutritional psychiatry. She founded the clinic in pure metabolic psychiatry at Stanford years ago mm -hmm. and has done and has been doing ongoing research in this area. And, you know, I followed her papers and, and stuff like that, as well as the, the work of others. And I, I think there's, there's a real basis for this. And we should be paying attention, especially in mental health. Mm -hmm. um, I just... I'm just not a proponent that there's only one diet that works. And again, we 
using word that we don't really like, but one food food um, eating an eating plan that right. w- that works. I think there are elements of the Mediterranean diet that work. I think there are elements of what I, I I'm talking about and, and hearing others speaking about more, which is meditation and a very yeah. smart Harvard medical yeah. student called me out Jeff years ago as talking about something. She said, well, I hope Dr. Naidu, you're not going to tell us about the Mediterranean diet because you know, I'm South Asian and, and we, we don't eat, we don't eat this, you know, we don't eat a certain type of food. And I think, I think she picked on chickpeas and, and it made me think, you know, when you interpret this for different cultures, bring in elements of foods that are healthy that they can eat. Um, so I think that was an important point. So I think use of Mediterranean, which originally was looked at by in the input of Japanese food, but if you if you widen that to Pan-Asian cultures, it becomes accessible to more people. And you also still including, you know, um, you know, say uh, black soybeans, for example, or black beans versus, you know, just chickpeas and 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 that's of course one component only. So I don't think there's just one eating plan. I think it has to match that person and what they need. Um, you know, my my initial work in mental health before I veered into nutritional psychiatry was um, in a forensic setting with severely mentally ill individuals. So individuals were getting in trouble with the law because of mental health issues. And part of that really taught me the use of these medications and when they can be helpful and not helpful. Mm -hmm. But it also taught me that if you're prescribing these medications, you really shouldn't be feeding these individuals sliced white bread because it's worsening their situation. So how do you place them on an appropriate diet? Well, the hospital should be managing that, but you know, we don't. Hospital food is terrible. Yeah. Well, I had firsthand experience of this. My daughter just spent five days in the hospital. Um, Well, another story. Um, But of course I was very aware of the food that she was being served. She was on IV for five days, so she couldn't really eat. Eat. Um, But still they, they brought in these, you know, plates of food, which was like juices, and uh, and you know um, processed cold cuts on white bread, bread. etc. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> like, but, you know, know, so so and, and it's beautiful, if, well-meaning people, nurses and doctors oh yeah, in this yeah. in this hospital mm-hmm. on the pediatrics ward, like yeah. doing everything they can yeah, yeah. for the health of it's the, of the patient. Not but, looking at the food in most yeah. hospitals. Some hospitals are yeah. trying to do it better, yeah. but for the most part, it's a huge gap. Because, you know, the multiple stories of cardiac patients after surgery, getting yeah. the most horrendous food, you know. So it's, th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a gap there. All I'm saying is that it's great that we have these guidelines, even the guidelines I speak about, but they have to mm-hmm. translate into real life. And some of those individuals that I was initially treating, unless the hospital was going to provide it, they were going to go out and spend their money with, with food stamps or whatever they had access to on getting the most amount of food, which also happens, um, you know, in in the community. And and I think it's hard. It's hard for people to know without a level of education or intervention, best choices. There's just multi fronts on this. um, I wouldn't call it a battle, but on this, uh, you know, effort to reify a healthier food standard in the United States. I mean, certainly, like you say, there's a lot of individual choice and personal agency. Yeah. You know, at the same time, there's not great access mm. to um, to healthy foods. I worked with um, a congressman, former congressman from Ohio, mm-hmm. um, some years ago, 
uh, on trying to get SNAP, mm -hmm. um, the food stamps program, to be redeemable uh, online mm -hmm. so people could go and use healthy food delivery services mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to bring healthy food to their neighborhoods where mm -hmm. they might only have a bodega or mm -hmm. um, what's you know called you know food deserts etc mm -hmm. um so unfortunately that you know that we weren't fully successful in that quest but you know there's a i think there's growing awareness mm -hmm. of of these issues um and that was a great effort jeff because now um i actually met with someone at um, a milton event i think it was earlier this year and she works uh, with amazon and they were able to get the uh, um, the snap system integrated onto amazon oh, is that right? so oh, so great. now you will actually look at groceries on amazon and they'll say it's you know eligible for for being redeemable in this way or redemption in this way and parents who are or families that are in areas that are you know, there's food apartheid, um, can actually access these foods. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the solutions, but good good thought to have had because when you see people in these situations, they're filling their carts with the foods that they want to feed their family with, and the more food you can get, the better you feel, mm -hmm. except what do you, th you know, what's 10 pieces of food for $10? It's yeah. usually the, the right. worst food, unfortunately. Um, well, in terms of meeting people kind of where they are, I, you, you enumerate a bunch of food swaps, yeah. which I think were great. And I, I have to refer to my notes here. So um, I'll give you uh, some examples mm -hmm. and then you can tell me some good swaps. How's that? Okay. So these are healthy food swaps. So let's say you're a sugary candy person. Mm -hmm. What are some possible swaps for you? Okay. So there are a whole lot of uh, things going on with that because you can go for, you know, the purest approach and get plain Greek yogurt. If you don't consume dairy, a plain coconut yogurt. Cinnamon is actually a great sweetener and has great um, sugar balancing benefits. That's right. And glucose that's sink. Right. It, yeah. Exactly. And, so, and it sweetens. Um, so you can add that and have it with berries. And by the way, wild blueberries have twice the amount of antioxidants. So if you get them frozen, I often suggest to people to do that. But you can also um, use uh, frozen, uh, uh, you make your own frozen yogurt, add fresh fruit to it, like those berries, freeze them, use, dip them in extra dark chocolate. Why extra dark chocolate? Because extra dark, night, um, extra dark natural chocolate has a good amount of evidence improving mood. Um, it also has serotonin, magnesium, and prebiotic fiber. Mm. I'm not talking about candy bars, obviously. So there are ways to, can you move from the candy bar to a little square of dark chocolate right. and uh, enjoy that with, say, something like a clementine? Because one of the things I learned in culinary school were two, two little tricks which really blew my mind. One was pairing citrus with, with dark chocolate. It's, mm. it, it actually is delicious. And another one is putting a pinch of black pepper when you marinate strawberries, you know, just in their natural liquid. Then you're not adding sugar to it because it just brings out the flavor. That's so just little, so little things that, yeah. you know, make it different for you. Black, um, uh, black pepper and strawberries. A pinch of black pepper. It's a, it's a recipe in my book. And so it just brings out the, the flavor. You can always have a, you know, zest of lemon on it or something like that. But ways to enjoy that something that's sweet um, in a different way. Um, and I, I like people to try to turn to just healthy whole foods in, in that way and pair them up with stuff, um, you know, 
dipping um, strawberries in extra dark chocolate, not hard to do. And that just gives you something that feels like a dessert, and it is. It's just it doesn't have to include. There's another one um, that I love, which is a banana ice cream, just made from frozen bananas and whipped into what ends up looking like an ice cream. And you can even make a chocolate flavor by adding extra dark natural cacao, and then you have like chocolate ice cream. And yeah. so the more that you start to try these things and expand your repertoire, the the, the way there are ways that you can fulfill that so-called sweet tooth, but with better choices for your brain. Yeah. And it's um, more gratifying, and it's more gratifying right? it to is. make something that's yeah. delicious versus and just so, opening a, a, a box of something. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And it's, they're not that hard because you're leaving out so much of the processed ingredient that it's right. you know, you're just a strawberry and you're dipping it in chocolate. So. Okay. I'll give you another swap. Okay. Okay. That was good. So what about some of the more common vegetable oils or... or um, or seed oils, what should yeah. we be using there? So my my preference um, is for people, if they can, uh, to use, you know, extra virgin olive oil in, say, salad dressings and things like that, and to cook if they can in avocado oil because of the, you know, cooking it slightly, say, roasting vegetables, for example. I also suggest to people to use alternate cooking methods, like in an air fryer, um, because an air fryer is a way to avoid the oil entirely or use much less. So avocado oil in that instance, and really get that crispy feeling to say zucchini fries or what, whatever it is, sweet potato fries, whatever it is that you like. Um, another way to think about it is there are also new oils on the market that are um, sort of very new, but I know this because people reach out to me and want to send me samples to taste um, that are not made with any of these. Um, and so there are a couple of those out there to look for. Uh, as I think could could be more emerging as we move forward as another alternative. I just want people to try to cut back on the processed vegetable oils mm -hmm. as much as they can. And, and I know there's been a lot of debate around like flashpoints and olive oil. Yep. Do you come down on any side of that debate? So I feel like, you know, here's the thing. For, for centuries, um, people in Italy have used olive oil um, deep fried in olive oil, done everything with olive oil, and they, you know, it's part of the Mediterranean region. They, yeah. they, they're doing okay. So I feel like with the knowledge, the, the small amount of knowledge I have, I, I prefer not to use that at high heat. Yeah. But if you do, it's not it's not a crime. Just make sure that you um, using it in moderation. I always say to people, <laughs> I wouldn't want you to be deep frying all your food anyway. So, <laughs> you know, right. use sure. it for healthier sure. ways to, to, to consume it. Um. Okay, the elephant in the room is often sugary drinks yeah. like soda, yeah, but also juice. Juice, yeah, so, vegetable and fruit juices. So, what would be a healthier alternative than sodas or or unadulterated yeah. juices? Yeah, this is this is often hard for people, um, and I do I I want to just acknowledge that because they're used to having a sweet beverage. But, you know, between the the, the actual sugar and just uh, even a 20-ounce bottle of soda, which can have up to 10 teaspoons or more sugar, um, uh, I think a 20-ounce, I think, is, is about 10 or more teaspoons of sugar. Uh, I always say to people, you know, would you be adding 10 teaspoons into a beverage that you were having? Say it was iced tea. Yeah. Um, so some choices are trying to get them from on a continuum back to sort of water, and what do you add to water? This is where it can be a bit problematic because some manufacturers are now making um, 
zero sugar, um, not zero sugar, sorry, zero calorie uh, ways to sweeten these. Right. And I was recently asked to comment on a water craze that was going on on TikTok. And, and let me provide this example to, to help <laughs> us with this. Yeah. And the, the, the message was positive, drink more water. So there were young people getting on TikTok and showing these 40 ounce um, uh, I don't know, jugs, for want of a better word, and drinking water. But they wanted to sweeten it to make it better. And one of the things they were using was um, a powder made from Skittles. So oh. Skittles candy made into a powder was one of the things they were putting into these 40 ounces. So I was like, okay, so oh, we, we kind of, we kind of, we're mixing this up a little bit. It's, it's yeah. not quite what we want. We want yeah. you to drink water, but, you know, not in this way. Yeah. So water is hard, but citrus, berries, um, you know, zesting lime, lemons, oranges, even using the peels to flavor the water. Mm -hmm. It's just one way to rethink it, um, making it interesting for people. I think that with juices, both fruit and vegetable juices, a little bit, you know, if you're on holiday, they offer you a nice freshly squeezed oranges. No one's saying don't have it. It's more that we don't want you to have it all the time. And the way I like to explain this to people is not only is the fiber removed, um, the sometimes if it's store-bought, it has added sugar. But then the other thing is if you had a quarter cup of berries and you had those same berries made into a juice, it takes you a second to drink that, but it probably takes you a few minutes to eat the berries because you're chewing, right. you're enjoying it, you're savoring the flavor. Um, all of that is going into the process, and therefore it's reaching your bloodstream at a slower rate. But when you gulp that little bit of juice, it's it's reaching your bloodstream as pure sugar, even though it's from a fresh fruit. Yeah, and that's important. The difference in in how it impacts your metabolism. Yeah, I mean, I think you know if you're going to consume fruit, try to eat the whole food. That's it. I mean, with apples, for example, if you um, you know wash it um, or get an organic apple. But if you leave the peel on and just eat it as an apple, you still get that quercetin and the pectin and the much, fiber and all of so the other much stuff right. versus juicing it um, right. or dehydrating it even. Or, Correct. So Because dehydration can concentrate the sugars. Right. So it's not the worst choice or something like that. But it you, you, you kind of have to pay attention to that if you are looking at your health. And that's where actually continuous glucose monitoring has helped us learn a bit more. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So probably you know her too, but... It, very, very close friend of mine, Dr. Casey Means, who's the chief I've, medical I've, yes. officer at, yeah. at Levels. Yeah. Um, she told me actually that the number one spiking food that they've ever tested, and they gather a lot of data mm -hmm. from, from people's use, um, was Skittles. <laughs> there you go. So, Skittles, you know, Skittles powder. Uh, well, but I mean, they were using powder in these liquids, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so it, I, I think, you know, beverages are hard. Um, but I talk about things like, you know, clean up your coffee, you know, if you consume mm -hmm. coffee, clean up your, um, your, if you, if, if you when, consume when you alcohol, clean up the coffee, just don't put, don't, don't load put junk it up ingredients with, with, in with yeah. you know, so Boston, we love Dunkin' Donuts and I see people putting a quarter cup of processed creamer yeah. and ultra processed cream and then eat sugars. Yeah. So it's, it's just something that we can, that's, I, I don't say avoid coffee because it, many people like it and they actually some health benefits. Right. Um, I think it's about how we consume it and then finding a, a healthier version. It's not easy if you're drinking several sodas to suddenly say, sure, drink water with berries, but can you start to embrace something that's a little different that's going to help you? Yeah. While we're hovering on coffee and caffeine, mm. um, in your book, 
uh, in the chapter on anxiety. Mm. And I know that you have a bigger project coming yes. on anxiety. Yes. So I want to make sure that we we tease that out a little bit. Um, but what what is the relationship yeah. between caffeine consumption mm. and self-reported uh, anxiety? Where, where should we be there? Yeah, so coffee uh, has a lot of plant polyphenols and is, is healthy for the liver. A colleague of mine has written an entire book about this. But it's the caffeine that often causes problems for people. Mm -hmm. And with anxiety, it is uh, has become even another one of those areas that's become personalized because um, I have patients who can drink a couple of cups of coffee in the morning, kind of, like I said, sort of clean cups, you know, about all the junky ingredients, and be fine. Others can't even tolerate half-caf or decaf, and they get jittery. It's not for them. Some of the research showed that use, uh, consuming less than 400 milligrams a day was okay. Um, I think, again, it comes down to your tolerance and how you are consuming it and what the impact is. It's not a bad substance to, to drink. Clean up your coffee um, and have it earlier in the day. So if you're drinking coffee in the afternoon, I suggest switching it out with just a simple cup of green tea or tea with fresh mint because mint contains luteolin, which is an antioxidant that actually boosts energy and kind of focus, as does green tea. Uh, green tea has EGCG and um, L-theanine, which actually helps people focus a little bit. So I'd say don't go for that cup of coffee. It's going to actually keep you up at night. Have a cup of green tea or mint tea even made with just fresh mint leaves because that'll perk you up and give you a little bit of a boost to get you through that afternoon, what people feel is an afternoon slump. Um, so I think with coffee, be careful. It can um, worsen your anxiety, and if it does, that for you is something you need to cut back on. You can have coffee, uh, sorry, withdrawal from caffeine. So if you're drinking a ton of coffee and it's not agreeing, don't go from five cups to zero you know, cut back a little bit slowly over a few days so your body can adjust as well. Can you quantify 400 milligrams for us in terms of the, the layman? Let's say you're going right. to Starbucks. You, what does that mean? Right. So, you know, off the top of my head, I have to tell you, Jeff, I've forgotten. But in the book, I broke it down into the different sizes of, say, Starbucks coffee yeah. just to make it more tangible for people. I think I remember. I think the venti was maybe 420 it was milligrams, a, it, a right, little it bit was above. More. It was a little bit. And we're talking just about the actual coffee, not right. about the flavored and the exactly. and the others. Yeah, Cause, Because like the flavored coffees and... The additional ingredients, all of that, um, takes you in a whole other direction with the added sugars. But I, I have a, mm -hmm. I have a fun question for you. So years okay. ago, right, there was this colorful, there was this really colorful drink that one of these coffee shops produced, and every kid was yeah. buying them. Right? Pumpkin spice latte, or right, right, right. <laughs> so this one had lots of colors in it. Okay. So uh, it was, and it actually looked beautiful. But so I, I did an experiment <laughs> with some of my patients in my clinic, and I said, okay. Um, I checked this out on the app because the app allows you to put in, you know, no sugar, whatever, different combinations. And I had them guess how many grams of sugar have after they know that four grams of sugar is one teaspoon. Yeah. And a small size, the smaller size, the 12 ounce, uh, without any added um, whip, without any added uh, syrup uh, called nonfat um had a certain number of grams of sugar, and I want you to guess how oh many. Oh, God. I, I, 
I don't want to be so negative. I'll say just 25 or 30 just for okay. the... It had 57 grams of sugar. Oh, no. So it was just a way to teach 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 57 them. 57 grams of sugar. That so that's your full... It was basically full of sugar. It was an entire yeah. thing with sugar. Yeah. And what is the recommended daily intake of sugar? It's significantly less. I want to say the American Heart Association puts it at under... I want to 20, say 25, 20 and 25 like or something like that. So, so you're already and, and just we, with that you, one just, just that one drink, drink right? you're already crushing it you, times three, basically. You're crushing it times three. And the whole purpose was to teach them that they can look it up in an app and right. calculate it ahead of time and educate themselves that they can make a better choice. Mm-hmm. Is um, there a good app that reports glycemic index? So I was actually talking about the coffee shop app, app uh-huh. to calculate right. it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's there's also a lot of debate about glycemic index. Okay. So I think there are um, apps like MyFitnessPal mm-hmm. that actually do help you track your nutrition and the breakdown of the nutrition which people like. Um, and they have like a database of 14 million foods or something. So that mm-hmm. that's one that I will, many of my patients, not all of them, but some of them that like to track may use. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's several others yeah. too. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about how the gut influences the brain. I want to maybe just touch on a little bit of that bi-directionality and how the brain influences the gut. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned in the book, and I think people have a sense for this as just a product of their own experience, is when they're in a psychologically taxing situation mm-hmm. or they've got to go um, public speak and, and they're not used to that, mm-hmm. They and they're assigning some form of salience or valence to a particular situation or it's perceived threat or nervousness, mm-hmm. they get a feeling in their tummy, right? right, right. Like butterflies, it's often right. described as it's a little bit of turmoil. So just as a product of direct experience, we know that psychology impacts physiology, that mm-hmm. our brain and how we perceive the world has in, um, an impact in terms of how we feel in our gut. Um Maybe you could unwind the impact of psychological stress mm. um, on gut physiology. So studies have shown that um, things like, say, a bad day at work, an argument with a colleague, um, not having a good day with your boss or argument with your spouse, um, stressful situations where we perceive stress um, can actually impact the gut microbes within one to two hours. You may not see the effect immediately, but they are altering and changing, which talks to the powerful nature of those emotions being translated Mm -hmm. and helps us understand why other ways to feel emotionally better by like learning a breathwork method, um, learning yoga, doing some practice that actually helps calm you is so important because the the manifestation of the stress has an impact on on your body um, and through the microbes. So, you know, that's separate to all the other negative impacts of stress. The way that food can impact that is that um, uh, stress actually precipitates habit pathways in the brain. Mm. So say you have suddenly developed a, you know, a candy fix over the over COVID, you know, mm-hmm. and you wonder, well, why can't I? Why do I have to get that bag of candy every single day? Well, it, it's it's it, it's not only just sugar and the dopamine reward pathways acting in a similar way, um, like cocaine and other street drugs. It's also 
the fact that you are tapping into these 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 cycles in your brain get that gets set up and it's hard to jump off that cycle when you're in it. Mm. So there are many different ways that um, you know the brain is the most important organ in our body, and I always say to people we we ignore it quite a bit, but it's you know it's without our brain nothing else functions. So yeah, well that's mysterious in its, it, it's way. It's very mysterious. We, um, we only learn we are we're only learning as we go with it with it. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems as if the activation of the sympathetic nervous system and the concomitant steroid hormones like epinephrine and, and cortisol mm-hmm. have a negative, when it's chronic, seems to have a negative downstream impact on the gut and, and, and the microbiome. Is that right? Yes, the hypercortisolemia that gets created, so the, the elevated cortisol, all of that has a very negative impact on the actual microbes and on the gut, the gut environment, the integrity of the gut. Um, setting up for dysbiosis, et cetera. Mm. So I think that, you know, the 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 gut is is a, I like to think of it as kind of grand central station because so much happens there. We have production of yeah. hormones, sleep and circadian rhythm, which is our internal body clock, vitamin production, immunity, uh, 70% of our immune system is in the gut, um, mental health and how we feel emotionally and so much more, right? So all of those hormones are interacting with these gut microbes. So when we're stressed, you know, the the cortisol response is hugely important and doesn't help us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also know the uh, I believe the hippocampus has um, a lot of glucocorticoid receptors, mm-hmm. so it's particularly susceptible to times of stress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, this is the area of the brain that's responsible for learning and mm-hmm. memory. Yes. And also in sort of assessing perceived threat. So yes. it's in kind of yeah. a tug of war with mm-hmm. the amygdala and the, and the hypothalamus. And so mm-hmm. there's, um, and when that becomes um, dysregulated, I mean, so many of these mental disorders and, and neurodegenerative disorders are associated, it, it seems like with the hippocampus. So you know, we do need to really pay attention mm-hmm. to stress mm-hmm. um, and anxiety. And, and so are, are there certain praxis that you engage in or that you can recommend? I know your mom engages in some right, of them. Right, right. Um, so, so yeah. you know, I, I, I want to just admit I'm I'm not a perfect person. I try I try my best and I, I struggle like, I like, okay. like everyone like else. Cut the podcast. Was. She's not perfect. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> because often people think, well, I wrote, you know, if I read the book that I, you know, yeah. no. it, it, we all have bad eating days. So, um, but but what I will say is um, when when I'm not in multiple time zones and traveling as much as I have been recently, I, I have a morning practice mm-hmm. and it involves meditation. I try to get something in that just centers my mind and grounds me. I, um, so in any particular order, I, you know, will do, have a spiritual practice, have a small meditation, make sure that I drink water, um, and, uh, I, I just find water very hydrating after you sort of get dehydrated after you after you've slept overnight. Um, when when I can do a sun salutation yoga, I'll do that. And uh, coffee is part of my morning routine. I, I love a cup of coffee as I'm kind of getting up for my day after I've done that. How do you take your coffee? Um, I, often black, and if I you know maybe a little bit of actually. I've learned to make my own hemp milk. Oh. And so it's actually really creamy when you make it at home. And so I blend up a little bit for the week. Nice. Um, so that I have, I, I, I like black coffee. 
Um, but I also like something in it. Mm-hmm. And and so if I do, then I and I go for something like that. And um, it's easy to even carry around. It lasts a little, a few days. So that's 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 part of it. But I find when I'm traveling and in different places, like I have been recently, it's tough to keep that routine because you you're not sleeping properly, you're staying up late. You're in, you know it's 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 a challenge. So finding some way to recenter yourself is important too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So. I think there's 60 million Americans now that have some form of mental illness or some self-reported mental disorder. Um, we're talking about 22, 23% of the population. I've seen projections um, that show that trajectory going up and up even to 40%, 50%. So, um, so your work is obviously right on time. Um, there are so many different diagnoses in mm-hmm. um in the D, in the dsm and, mm-hmm. and other places mm-hmm. um certainly depression is a major major mm-hmm. one um oftentimes what we're looking at is sort of clusters of symptoms to try yes. to put a diagnosis on That's so correct. we know how to treat it, and it but, right. it's not perfect, but we don't yeah. really know 100 percent. yes i agree with that um but certainly anxiety mm-hmm. is such a huge mm-hmm. Um, issue for so many different people right now. And, and I know that you're, um, well, you tackled anxiety in one of the chapters mm-hmm. of, of your, mm-hmm. of this book right here. Um, but you have a project that's more sp- specifically focused on food and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just tease that out a little bit? Because sure. I know that book is coming out in December, I believe of 2023. And, and, and this is right yeah. on time, like I said. Thank you. It is. You know, what I, the reason, the inspiration for this book was really where the first book, This Is Your Brain on Food, was really outlining the different conditions and ways to handle them. Um, because one of the things that unexpectedly happened, because I didn't know COVID was going to happen as my book came out, was people <laughs> had at less access to direct care. Right. And food provided a way that they could really start on their own um, just to make these tiny tweaks and then wait for an appointment with a therapist or a doctor. But what I saw, Jeff, um, starting off with Zoloft going on shortage right at the beginning, yeah. first time in my career, um, was that people just had unbounded anxiety. And it was different phases. It was, you know, the actual illness. It was the actual numbers. We was, you know, take yourself back to March and April of 2020. And um, then it was the vaccine. Then it was, you know, how many vaccines and, and is this, uh, are these, who's going to have a vaccine and who's not? And then was, should the children be vaccinated? All of these things. And then work from home, families, um, different generations coming back together when it was possible or kids coming back from college. So many stresses. And what I just saw cycling in all of my patients was anxiety, just in people who had otherwise been okay um, and not necessarily all related to dietary changes, just an unbounded anxiety. And I felt there had to be a way to focus in on this. And many people think of depression because depression, well, depression and anxiety can be lethal, but, you know, depression is one of the lead, the, the global cause of disability worldwide. Mm. But anxiety is the most common condition in the U.S. and it's always been that way. And it has increased after COVID. We, you know, some of the research is pointing to to two times or, or more. The World Health Organization globally um, released data to say that depression and anxiety increased by 25%. Um, so I think that there's a reason we need to think about the ways we can tackle anxiety. 
And it's a plan. It's, it's many different things. But one of the ways you can do that is how you're eating. And so my next book is called, um, I have, Let's bring it up. Let's yeah, look at it. It's called Calm Your Mind with Food. You're hearing it first here. <laughs> um, and it really is about uh, a revolutionary guide to controlling your anxiety with food. But it has the foods that, you know, you should be trying to eat, um, the foods that you should be cutting back on and more extensively going into the research, but then also a protocol. How, how can you work through this on your own? Meant to be not, you know, if you're seeing a doctor, by all means, I want you to continue doing that and your therapist. But can you do things at home in, you know, really using the power at the end of your fork, voting with your fork, voting with your dollars about how you're eating and what you're eating to bring that forward? Um, one of the most vulnerable groups has actually ended up being um, teenagers and young, young and, and adolescents, yeah. especially around the rising suicide rate. So I just feel that whether it's as a family, as individuals, as communities, as teachers, whoever we are, there are ways that we can do this together to just make these small changes that can potentially help us and be powerful. Mm. So. Yeah, well, this is um, strikes a very personal chord for me. Obviously, I have three teenage daughters. Yeah. I talk about them fairly openly on the podcast, yeah. um, of course, respecting their privacy. Yeah. Um, but I will just say that, uh, you know, anxiety is just so prevalent amongst especially teenage girls, yeah. but, yeah. but, yeah. you know, across both sexes, but I see it more right. <laughs> in stark uh, relief with, right. with, with right. teenage girls. And, you know, I've also seen the, uh, the teenage suicide, um, uh, reports and studies. And honestly, it's, it's, it's touched my girls, um, yeah. directly. And uh, and this is why um, your work just couldn't be more important. So I want to thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you. From a very uh, personal place. And uh, and I, I just so look forward for uh, to getting this this work out and amplifying it um, uh, as much as we we communally can. And anyone who's listening or or watching this, you know, please um, talk about Uma Naidu and her work. Um, with everyone that you possibly can because it, it's so important and it's also you just have the most beautiful way about you. Thank um, you. I'll butcher an, an Emerson quote, but who you are is so beautiful that I can't understand it. I, I don't hear what you're saying. You said something to yes. that effect. Thank you. Um, so sweet. Yeah. That, uh, that again, you know, you have a, a wonderful presentation um, and uh, is both inspiring um, but also very informational and, as I said, avoids hyperbole and sensationalism and i think um that's what we really need right now so thank you Uma. thank you jeff i'm so touched by what you said and thank you for hosting me in this great podcast and helping to share my my work with more people including your daughters i i feel like they are some of the people i'm trying to trying to reach with this book um whether it's through their parents or themselves um you know this is a it's a tough time for us and i think this is one of our ways we can find uh, we can find forward together. So thank you. Well, I'll be looking for you on TikTok as well. <laughs> That's where they <laughs> except, spend most of their time. Except I won't be giving you Skittles powder. No, <laughs> no, no. I won't be. Me. <laughs> yeah. Well, when people are interested, and surely they will be, what's the best place for them to keep abreast of your work? Um, to follow me on social media, which is at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O. My website, sign up for my newsletter. I send out new foods and information and new research all the time. 
and we do that as well across platforms on social media, all the platforms. Um, you can get a free chapter of my first book called, um, you can log into gutbrainromance.com and download a free mm -hmm. chapter. And uh, you can check out the book where books are sold and you can look out for the pre-orders of the new book yeah. uh, coming out in December, December 26th of this year. So. Yeah, I believe the pre-order is available now. It, it, uh, is, I didn't, it I didn't, is available. I did click through that and I was like, okay, great. It is, um, it is available. Yeah, it's out there. Okay, well, Uma, we'll, we'll do another one, I hope, if, you, if you'll have me uh, around the launch of the book. I would love that. Book. Thank you. Okay, that be continued. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Uma Naidu. If you want to learn why the trillions of bacteria living in your gut are key to controlling your anxiety, well, check out her book, Calm Your Mind with Food. And don't forget to go to onecommune.com anxiety to receive the first five days of her commune course, Nutrition for Anxiety, for free. Now, if you enjoy this show, and you'd like to receive 30 days of free all-access to Commune membership, well, write us a review, preferably a good one. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glowing review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top doctors, authors, and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure that you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with any questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Lyle, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow. And I am here for you.